Right. Where are we going? I don't know. Where's Where's good for you? Where do you normally go? Would uh, you go? I would probably go to Crisol Park. You want to walk that way? Yeah. If that's. I mean, Highbury Fields is okay as well, but it's just so crowded. Yeah. And boring if you, <laughs> when you've done it. Like 50, what thousand times is your experience of walking the dog in lockdown been different from how it was before because presumably like when you have a dog you just have to walk them a lot anyway right that's the thing well yeah lockdown's been good for him because he's had loads of people around and he sort of seemed a bit surprised really by that and lots of people who wanted to who had to who had to go out to take exercise because they weren't really moving otherwise. And uh, so he sort of um, has on some days got a few bonus walks, but it's been difficult to isolate really. It's been, you've got to have him, you're supposed to have him on the lead. Right. And when the weather's nice, there are so many people around that I stopped doing it and started going out at 6.30 in the morning to avoid avoid the crowds which was quite good it's still surprisingly full in Highbury Fields at 6.30 a.m. have you got a dog? no we've got two cats <laughs> they don't need walking <laughs> although I'd like to I had a I had an idea that we should suggest to the council that Highbury Fields is like once a month cat day and all the dogs have to stay in and we get to take our cats out <laughs> on Highbury Fields on Leeds to like hang out with each other. Problem is cats really hate each other, so. Look, I mean. I don't think it would work. As a dog owner, I'm, uh, I'm absolutely behind that initiative. <laughs> I'd just love to see it. <laughs> Can you imagine like 200 cats <laughs> on Leeds just going mental? Going mental, exactly. And the owners sort of standing in little groups, shrugging. Exactly. My friend got a kitten and he lives in a flat, so the kitten hasn't been out its whole life. And it's on its own and he said oh i'm gonna kind of bring the kitten around for a play date with your cats <laughs> i was like it just it really just doesn't work that way with cats <laughs> that's not gonna fly <laughs> yeah i wonder what would happen i think a lot of hissing and arched backs probably and just general apathy <laughs> so how long have you been in uh Highbury hill for uh, 12 years. What do you want to do? How long do you... I'm fine. Yeah, let's go to Crystal Park. Let's do that. We lived here for 12 years. We lived, but we've lived in Highbury for longer than that, for about 20 years. Really? Yeah. We lived in Lucerne Road and then Gillespie Road. Right. And where were, where were you before that? Well, I come from South East London. So I grew up in Blackheath and Greenwich, and which was nice, but transport-wise, especially in those days, it wasn't very good. And I always planned to live near a tube when, when that became feasible. So was that in some way a, a kind of betrayal, like moving from south to north? It was more of a relief, really. <laughs> uh, although I did like it, it was, in, in some ways, it was, um, in practical terms, it was much better. And uh, yeah, one stage we moved into a house almost next to the, to, to the tube which was taking things a bit far. <laughs> it was a stone's throw away, and actually somebody did once throw a stone through our window from the, from the tube. To prove it? Yeah. I mean, the problem with that 
phrase is it's definitely ambiguous. It depends on who's throwing the stone, I guess, doesn't it? Yeah. What you mean? It could be someone throwing it at my house, or it could be be me throwing it at the at the tube. No, I more meant like as a measure of distance. Oh, I see. Yeah. That's a good point. If it was like Fatima Whitbread or something, then that... we could have moved further away. <laughs> <laughs> We're just moving a Fatima Whitbread stone's throw away from the tube. <laughs> that would be confusing for like estate agents' listings. Just a stone's throw from the tube. <laughs> that's right. Oh, uh, that's good. And what about you? How long have you lived here? I'm uh, just turned 44 uh, a few days ago. And I moved to Highbury when I was uh, 20. I came to London from North Yorkshire and uh, I took go to university at UCL. And uh, I lived in halls of residence for uh, a year. And then my parents uh, came up with this very generous and brilliant plan to buy a flat as an investment. And uh, the deal was that um, I would, you know, pay the mortgage. So I had lodges and had kind of summer jobs while I was a student. Well, which street was that in? That was Battledean Road. Oh, yeah. But that was, you know, as you know, like 24 years ago was not not particularly fancy. Yeah, it wasn't it was a bit fancy different. at all, actually. Yeah. The whole of Highbury felt so different then. In some ways, well, I don't know, I suppose being a student, my, my own experience would be quite different than it is now. That feeling, like, I mean, we would come home drunk from Bethnal Green or whatever, and we'd just walk home and then fall asleep on the fields at like three in the morning. And kind of, you know, not a care in the world, I guess. Yeah, I mean, certain parts of Highbury retain the the 90s charm, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's changed a lot. I have difficult feelings about it because I feel like I'm part of the gentrification process that's kind of separated out the kind of fabric of the society here. And yet that, is, that kind of interwoven fabric is the very thing that I love about it. So I don't know. I feel a bit confused about that. I feel like maybe it's my fault that there are more fancy cafes that have pushed old businesses out or something. That's a lot of responsibility to take. <laughs> there must be other people involved. <laughs> yeah. I know what you mean, but it's been a very gradual thing. I think, do you think that the, uh, the Arsenal stadium redevelopment had an impact on it? Well, that's interesting. That must be, that's very close to you, right? Yeah, we back on to the, to Highbury, which when we bought our house was then being redeveloped into the flats that it is now. Yeah. And uh, we're very obviously, well, like you, very close to the Emirates, which used to be, I don't know if you ever went there, a really sort of route one rubbish tip. Yeah. Where, because now the, the municipal rubbish tip is really organised. Yeah. Everyone's really polite. There are loads of containers and you've got to sort your rubbish and then you just drove into this great big hall and opened the back of the car and pushed it onto the floor. <laughs> Hope for the best. Yeah, and then got out of the way before the, uh, the forklift truck came to move it I away. I remember that. And I've been wondering why Tottenham fans don't use that piece of information more. 
feels like it's absolutely prime material. Yeah. But, yeah. The new tip's kind of a joy, though. The what? The new tip, the new rubbish dump. Oh, yeah, absolutely impressive. Are you interested in recycling as a kind of thing? I find that going to the recycling experience is very cathartic. Yes. Because you go... I mean, obviously, I want to do my bit to save the planet as well. <laughs> yeah, it's not just purely selfish. No, no, it's yeah. not just to sort of to do with the endorphins. <laughs> but you go there with a load of rubbish and you come out very, very, in very short order with a pristine and empty car. Yes. And it's a sort of relief to let go of the things that you've held on to for too long. Yeah, for sure. So you married? Yes, to Anna. To Anna. Did you move to Highbury together? Or? Yeah, we did. I think we were living in, renting a flat in Docklands immediately before, and uh, we bought a house together, flat together, and um, have sort of changed houses a couple of times since then, but always in the same area. Yeah. Is she from London too? She's from Jerez de la Frontera in Spain. Ah. Oh, I know Anna then. Yeah, no, she does, she knows you, yeah. Anna, as in I would know her from Canterbury? Yeah. Gotcha. She speaks uh, excellent English and excellent Spanish, obviously, but... Uh, I mean, I think she's generally given the epithet Spanish. Spanish Anna, not inaccurate. I hadn't connected the two of you. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> she knows your, your wife, yes. I think. Lucy. Yeah. Definitely. I sometimes feel, and I'm not speaking specifically about Anna, but I sometimes feel a bit sort of unwelcome as a man at the school. At Canterbury? Yeah, like, not by the school, but by the, by the kind of groups of mothers, that I'm like a, an interloper or something. I get a little bit of that feeling. No? Uh, I know what you mean, because I, I experience a similar feeling or the same feeling. I don't think that that is their intention. No. I think that that's just, because I don't do it very often. Right. And uh, so it feels like I'm a kind of amateur yeah. stepping up to the, to the plate. But uh, I think it's just in my mind, really. Everybody's very nice. Yeah, no, people are nice, for sure. Apart from this one, no, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> We've made such great friends through that school really like surprised me how it's this whole new stash of of potential friends that you can make i guess based on your common experience of having your kid in a class together or whatever is the starting point but yeah 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 we made some good friends at canterbury as well our youngest son doesn't go to canterbury though he goes to st john's okay the others went the one that i met yeah yeah the others all went to Canterbury. What are they up to now? They're much older. One's in the second year at Bristol University and one's in the lower sixth at Camden Girls' School, although he's a boy, but they let boys in in the, in the sixth form. Is your Bristol kid in Bristol? He's not, he's in our house. Okay. Um, when it was, became apparent that the, there was gonna be a strict lockdown, I talked him into coming home didn't take much persuasion actually uh, and because it's just much easier 
Because there was a period when it was quite difficult to buy stuff, wasn't it? Yeah, there was a minute there, yeah, for sure. It felt like everything might just sort of collapse. Yeah. Yeah, it did. It's sort of, the whole thing has turned out to be so much less bad than the worst predictions had suggested. And, you know, not to minimise how bad it has been, but it leaves us in this quite weird place of like wondering whether, you know, how much worse it would have been if we hadn't have done the lockdown or indeed like how it could have been approached differently. I don't know. But yeah, it, it just it, to me, it all seemed a little bit reactionary. I suppose you are reacting to events inevitably, but um, it's sort of they changed their strategy a bit and then did things a bit too late, maybe. Yeah, it seems like it. It's one of those things that we'll, we'll guess we'll be talking about for a long time, but um, already feels a bit boring. Yeah. Sort of, I don't know, not boring. Again, that sounds so callous. That's not what I mean. I guess what I mean is that until we've got real hard research to start talking about, everything's so speculative that it just almost yeah. feels a bit pointless. Yeah, that's right. And it's difficult to judge the statistics that come out from different countries because it seems like in lots of cases there are different ways of measuring the and presenting them. Yes, totally. But in time, I suppose that will uh, get fixed and it will give people a clearer picture of what happened in each country and maybe why. I hope so. I mean, my firm wish is that doctors and scientists around the world, you know, are really like encouraged to come up with some coordinated research over the next couple of months because that feels like the most important thing we, sh we could be doing really in my mind but I don't know whether that whether that kind of coordination is actually happening yeah uh, who knows I'm sure it's happening in uh, at some level uh, whether it's not as happening internationally really I don't know have your kids fared how's the lockdown been for them they've been all right our older boy noah is um he's very sort of contained and self-sufficient sort of a person i would say so really he's like he's pretty happy um the younger one is very social and i think he struggles a lot more yeah i think he's sort of it's golden for him to be able to speak to a friend on on a video chat or even better to sort of see them in real life and I think not being at school is really starting to wear on him especially when we tell him he's not allowed to play video games <laughs> <laughs> I know because it's tempting isn't it because it's just an instant solution well I believe it's a good thing in the sense that it is a kind of socializing now I'm sure I'm not the only person saying this in fact I I know I'm not because I was listening to Louis Theroux's new podcast he was talking to Helena Bonham Carter and uh, saying what I was thinking too, which is that it's not like they're sitting on their own in their rooms playing some sort of solo first-person shoot-em-up. They've got like three friends on the computer screen next to them and they're chatting and bantering and, you know, talking rubbish. So in a sense, it's really not that different from kicking a ball in the park. It's just there's no exercise involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's definitely a much more sociable thing than, you know, than it used to be. And I can see how addictive it is. So I just avoid playing it. <laughs> yeah. Personally, but so I'd probably just get addicted. Do you think that about yourself generally, that you would get addicted to that kind of thing or yeah. stuff? Yeah. 
anything really. Really? Yeah, anything that's nice. <laughs> yeah, just incredibly weak and actually no, that's not true. I've I don't know, weak's not the right word because I've sort of successfully given up various things but um Yeah. You know, the temptation is considerable and I haven't I remember once I think it when I was about 19 or 20, no, 22 I think I was, I just left university and I was unemployed, living with a couple of friends, uh, and Anna actually, in a flat in Islington that my parents owned. And one of these friends had a PC, uh, a 486, which at the time was um, sort of state-of-the-art consumer computer, and he had a game on it. And I seem to remember at the end of the game, I played the game until I completed it and uh, you had to shoot uh, I think you had to shoot Nazis in it and uh, at various levels and the more you progressed through it the bigger they, they got and uh, I eventually beat the game and the game at the end had these stats for how long I've been playing and it was just, I can't remember how long but many tens of hours wow and I just thought no I'm not doing that again <laughs> I had a similar experience with um, World of Warcraft do you know that one no it's a game where you know, hundreds of people are all playing it at once and it's in this like giant fantastical world and your little avatar is a, you know, whatever, a warrior or a goblin or something. And uh, I got completely addicted to that. I remember being awake still in bed with my laptop, like burning a hole in my thighs at sort of three in the morning. And Lucy like woke up and she goes, you're still playing that thing. And I was like, oh my God, I am. <laughs> I shut the lid and put it to one side. And then about 20 seconds later, I picked it back up again and just deleted the game. Because I was just like, I've got, that's the only way. I've got to just stop. Yeah, no, that's, that's the way. And then you probably didn't really miss it after you've taken that decision. Not at all. It's, uh, addictions are often just very psychological, I think, and, and not really. You believe that they're physical, but they're not really. Well, it is mood altering, I think. You know, even playing video games is. I suppose there's an attraction to that, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Hay fever. Yeah, I'll accept that. <laughs> Unclean! <laughs> These sort of dystopian visions that people keep talking about, like... Someone was telling me that the Gates Foundation is coming up with an app that they're building in conjunction with Google that everyone will be forced to download and it, like, buzzes in your pocket if someone nearby has COVID. Oh, really? Yeah. It's like... <laughs> That just sounds like the worst. It's going to be going off all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just appalling. And, you know, the kind of, the idea that the person who has COVID, you know, like a sort of red sign appears above their head. Beware. Yeah, then you would, well, you would, um, not you. Some people would then perhaps start identifying the, shaming the person with COVID. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, it's sequestering them. Yeah, it's, it's already, it's made people a bit officious, I think. Not everybody, obviously, but some people just love, they, they're just, they've been turned into amateur policemen. Sorry, Adam, just the joys of dog ownership. Oh, that's right. I got told off, we went to Borough Market to buy some stuff. Oh, yeah. On the weekend, I got told off by a couple of people. For, for what? What were they, what was their beef? Uh, like, I don't know. Taking too long right. to buy something right. was one thing. He may have been right, this guy. Um, but I didn't know he was waiting and he was so rude. I mean, it was really? just unbelievable. He could have just said, excuse me, uh, the, do you mind hurrying up? <laughs> he was abusive. Oh, God. And then someone else who took issue with me standing 
by the exit with the dog. Too close. Don't you think that we've got a bit of a problem negotiating these kind of social mores as British people? You know, we're quite bad at it. I was talking to Claire, I think. She was saying that when she's out for a walk here with the dog in Clissold Park and she gets to like a gate and there's someone coming towards her, she's now got to a point where she literally just puts her hand up and goes like that. Oh, really? Wait, you know, like that. But for British people, that takes quite a lot of kind of uh, energy to believe. Too confrontational. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, know. We're not very good at that. Everyone's too polite, except for, in fact, that the person who was rude to me wasn't, wasn't British. But um, maybe that'll be a big thing for us. We'll be like trying to figure out how to sort of firmly say what we want. Without annoying people. Without annoying people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a difficult thing. Should, we could give it a go. <laughs> give it a go now. <laughs> Get hospitalised. Smile. <laughs> <laughs> a kind of rictus grin. Please, would it be all right if you were to stand a bit further away from me? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's tricky. I'm sure we'll get better at it because it looks like we've got quite a lot of yeah. a, a long time to practice. Yeah. I noticed in your front garden you've got a Tesla. Yeah. That's nice. How, how, how do you find that? Uh, it's good, but you definitely have to bear in mind the whole charging issue. We've been caught out a couple of times not having enough charge to get home. Really? So you had to get towed? No, we just end up having to sit because it's only the superchargers that charge it really quickly. Yeah, yeah. The, the kind of overnight charges take hours. So I mistook, on one occasion, I mistook a charger for a supercharger that turned out to be a slow charger. So we just ended up having to sit in like a car park for several hours. <laughs> that was just a simple mistake. <laughs> At those moments, your choice of vehicle seems not as good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've got an electric car as well. Have you? Yeah, I've got a, we've got a, a Nissan Leaf. Oh, cool. It is, it's really great uh, until, I mean, for driving around London, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's so much nicer to drive. Yeah. And you never have to go to a petrol station. And But if you want to do a, anything like a remotely long journey, it's a bit of a pain. Yeah. Yeah, we were going to be going to uh, Devon for the weekend this in a couple of weeks time which we're obviously now not going to be doing and it was really becoming a question of how would we do it wouldn't your car get there uh maybe but it, it didn't look like there were any superchargers down there yeah. it can create this sort of hassle where you have to drive half an hour to get to the supercharger or an hour or whatever and it takes too long if you just plug it into the mains yeah that's true i guess you could do that overnight couldn't you i haven't actually done that yet Maybe it's that's very, something it's, I should learn. I've done it a few times. It's Heavy. incredibly slow, but it, it? Uh, but it, but sort of it, if you do it overnight with our battery, it will do it. It'll get it back up to 100. What do you do for work? Uh, I have a company that makes cool training videos and courses, online courses for other companies. And in fact, today I was doing a, a storyboard for something about the future of personal mobility. Oh yeah. Like how we're going to get around in, you know, in the future, in the not very distant future really. And uh, 
Tesla was yeah. an important part of it for the way it's already changed the car market and perceptions of electric vehicles and now everybody's doing the same thing. Yeah, I guess all the manufacturers will be introducing electric vehicles pretty soon, right? Yeah, I think they all are, yeah. But there'll be loads of other things, like you'll be able to, you'll, you know, you'll, there'll be an app on your phone that you'll be able to sort of just say where you want to go, a bit like Google Maps, I suppose, except that it will all, instead of just telling you the route, it will organise all the travel for you and then a driverless taxi will appear at your front door and take you off to, I don't know, a drone port or whatever it's going to be called. And How does that kind of future thinking apply to your training video business? Well, that particular thing is just explain is just a sort of informative course about, or we'll series of videos about that explain this, you know, this change. That course is mainly for energy companies, right? Because of course, those kinds of trends have an impact on them. Yeah, that sounds like a fun business to be in. It can be. You can think quite freely about big societal stuff. Yeah, to get quite philosophical. Yeah. I never really have enough time for getting too philosophical. I'm just always so busy, but... Really? Yeah. Or busy actually making the videos. Doing that and just sort of, our, our company's quite small, but of late, we've had quite a lot of work to do. And for the stuff that we make, because we think the market will be interested in it, and for stuff that other people ask us to make, because they need it. And uh, so we're just sort of always, always busy, always doing the latest project whatever that is is your philosophical beard a uh, is that a lockdown beard or is that a, a is that a normal fixture it, it used to be a bit more normal i grew it about i don't know maybe four years ago or something i grew a bit of a beard but it was always quite trimmed yeah but since the lockdown i i thought well i'll just see how long it will get yeah and uh it's getting a bit too long actually it's getting i mean who says how long is too long that's true Back to Fatima Whitbread and... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't mean that she had a beard. <laughs> I think that's relative. what you were saying. <laughs> if she had a husband, would that be her beard? If Fatima had a husband? Because she was gay, I think. Yeah, maybe. Can, can it work that way around? Like, you know how a gay man has a wife who's her, or a girlfriend who's his beard? Yeah, actually, I'd forgotten. But I've, now, you've, you know, you've said that, I've, I remember, vaguely remember the, the use of the word in that way. What does, that, what does it mean? I, that's all it means. It's like, if you're gay and you're trying to pretend that you're not, and you, you claim to have a girlfriend or a wife, right. that girlfriend or wife is not called your beard, yeah. Right, that's your beard. I don't really know why. Google may know. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Did you listen to, I don't know if you listen to podcasts, but... There was another a sort of follow-up Elon Musk Joe Rogan interview. Oh really? I haven't just listened to that. Just came out about three or four days ago. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> it's really interesting. Just thinking of Tesla. Yeah, no, I'll definitely give that a listen. Actually, they're good interviews. Yeah, this is a really good one, and it's it's interesting to see how exasperated Elon Musk is with the whole coronavirus lockdown in California and. Well, he, they just opened their factories again, didn't they, I think, this week. And his kind of reasoning for that. And he's not really shy about expressing his opinions, is he? He's quite controversial. Yeah. I like that, though. I like hearing his logic around it. You know, I think it's, it's good to hear those kinds of opinions as well. 
not necessarily to agree with, but yeah, to get you thinking a bit. Well, he's definitely a visionary. <laughs> yeah, one of the things he said really struck stuck with me, which is that because uh, he's announced that he's selling everything, he's got all these houses, but he's going to sell them all. Right. He doesn't want to have anything anymore because he doesn't want to be criticised for being someone that owns loads of stuff. So he's like, well, if I sell it all, then no one can criticise me about that anymore. And uh, he's just going to rent rent one house. But he was talking about how he bought a whole load of houses in a little neighbourhood right. on top of a hill in somewhere in the Hollywood Hills. And uh, he was thinking about the project of turning, knocking them all down and turning this property into like his dream house. You know, with a kind of domed roof that opens up and your helicopter comes out and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And he thought to himself, the amount of time and energy, or the way he put it, brain cycles, that I would have to put into making that my dream house seemed like such a kind of waste, given that I you know, could be putting that into getting us to Mars. So he's like, I'm forgetting about the dream house. I'm just gonna keep, keep going with the Mars thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I would probably just go for the dream house. <laughs> yeah. Think. Oh, the Mars thing, it was a nice idea, but a bit difficult. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So is your path, because what you're saying that you do sounds pretty rarefied, like to come to that point. Did you come at it from kind of film production or? No, I was a financial journalist. Right. And I suddenly became frightened about becoming an old financial journalist. Right. And uh, <laughs> just, and I, started a business with a with a work colleague who's now a friend called Ed and we basically started we just carried on doing what we had been doing but for our own company and and it sort of just developed into doing training things because that there seemed to be a need for that but the skills that you needed to to write a course were pretty much the same as the skills you need to write an article and and then we just responded to whatever anyone wanted us to make and that sort of made us go a bit more upmarket and graphics and well a lot more actually and then we got a we found a really good animator and designer in India and he built up a little team of people because then we had no money or very little money and it was too expensive to use those to, to source those services here. Uh, we found this guy and he's built up a team of people in uh, Jaipur in Rajasthan. And they're brilliant. They just, they make, you know, whatever we ask them to make and do sort of immaculate coding and all those other things that they need to do. And then we go to visit them occasionally, which is quite good fun. That's really cool. How did you make the initial connection? Uh, <laughs> to coders in Jaipur. It was because at that time we we started off using. I remember just googling designer India, thinking that they would, you know, that they would speak English and uh, we'd be able to afford it. And there are loads of offshore, you know, India-based companies that have teams of designers, and you sort of rent them, rent their services out by the hour or by the day or whatever. And uh, that's how, and he was, he worked for one of those companies and then he left the company uh, and offered to 
set up our set up our own operation there and we jumped at the chance really and that's probably about eight years ago it definitely adds a different dimension to that's great to doing business every day it's good fun and what, what about you what do you do i manage music artists oh cool know, bands and what have you are you a musician or did you no i was like a classic sort of friend of the band type situation with uh, a band called Keen, who turned out to be really successful. But we were just friends at university to begin with. And then I started to manage more people and built up a little company. My office is on Corsica Street. Excellent. Which is really nice. Just yeah. walk in. Yeah, not, not the worst commute. No. <laughs> no, it's really good. Do you have an office space? Do you work from home? Uh, we just, I just work from home. We had an office in Covent Garden and we just never really went there. So now we, we, get, we, we do meet up sort of regularly in a business centre in central London, which is nice from time to time. So you're the kind of prototypical distributed workforce kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's great. We used to be really embarrassed about it, you know, because it didn't look like you had a proper company. And then I can't remember when we sort of realised that actually it could be said to be a virtue yeah and uh and it's been you know helped us a bit in the current situation actually i'm sure yeah i hope this walk i didn't make you walk too far no it's great i liked it a lot i feel like i've made the mistake of talking too much which is something i tend to do <laughs> i don't think you have <laughs> i think you got it just right thank you that's my my, um, you know, my midlife crisis has uh, kind of instructed me to be more patient and listen more. That's what I'm trying anyway. Ah, wouldn't bother. <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit of a skill listening, isn't it? It's something you've got to work at. I mean, maybe it comes naturally to some people. Yeah. But... Uh, the instinct to talk and to dominate a conversation can be quite strong. I feel like the danger for me is that I'll, I'm sort of only half listening and really what I'm thinking about is the next thing I'm going to say <laughs> in, any, in any conversation. Yeah. It's not that rewarding. Because what's, what's interesting when you don't do that and you let your brain be intrigued in the thing that the person's saying is that you've still got loads of things to say. You know what I mean? still interesting. Yeah. Uh, you're still... No, sorry you're still being interesting. See, that's my concern is like, if I'm not thinking of the next interesting thing to say, I'll have nothing interesting to say. Yeah. And then you'll think I'm boring or whoever I'm talking to will think I'm boring. And then I'm like, you know, I'm living in this terrible world of people not liking me because I'm so boring. <laughs> yeah. But the reality is if you go with it and you just really listen, it turns out it sparks off loads of things for you to say interesting things. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Totally agree. And in fact, the other way may work against you, not you, against one if you're... Because it's, it, if it feels to the other person like you're just waiting to say what you want to say, that comes across as boring, I think. Yes, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Shutting up and li actually listening to what people say is really, is, is really difficult. I find... Because I've done, I haven't done this for quite a long time, but I have done a lot of interviews on quite sort of, you know, often quite technical, dry subjects. And you're just, you know, 
I'm, I'm sort of thinking I've got 45 minutes with this person. What am I going to ask them next? They've kind of answered what I was planning to ask next. So what am I going to say? And you just spend the whole time thinking about what your next question will be rather than really analysing what they're yeah. saying. Do you remember that Emily Maitlis interview with, uh, with Prince Andrew? I thought that that was a really good example of an interviewer. I mean, she's obviously incredibly well prepared going into the interview, but her ability to uh, remain composed during the interview and really forensically ask questions about what he's saying or respond to what he's saying it's really amazing to be able to do that. I mean, loads of people can do that really well. Yeah, there's different versions of that, aren't there? There's, she's sort of, she's someone that like, definitely like puts herself, you know, back to help put the other person forward, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But then you've got your like Louis Theroux or your Mark Maron type, where it's definitely as much about them as it is about the interviewee. It's like an opportunity to riff and be funny yeah kind of thing and show off which is can be really fun as well or russell brand i guess kind of like that as well yeah i wish my interviews had been a bit more like that it would have been quite weird though <laughs> on sort of financial stuff yeah exactly <laughs> i mean the mark maron thing uh, do you listen to his interviews at all uh I, no i don't i haven't actually don't know who he is he's got a podcast called what the Fuck or wtf and he's done maybe 1500 or more interviews now with everyone you can possibly think of out of his garage in in LA and he's a stand-up comedian by trade but his podcast has become so successful it seems to have given him this other this real sh whole new career in a way he's almost become a kind of personality oh, I've got to, I'll have to check, check him yeah, out yeah he's really brilliant he's, his stand-up's great as well actually but uh I once went to one of his stand-up shows and I manage uh, Mumford and & Sons and uh, he was talking about his neighbourhood in LA. One of his gags was about how his, uh, his neighbourhood had been Mumfordized. <laughs> <laughs> and I went and talked to him afterwards. Uh, you know, I'd like queued up with the fans to chat to him afterwards. And he's, you'll see when you investigate him, he's quite sort of, what's the word, irascible. You know, he's quite sort of, confrontational and he's looked at me he goes yeah what's your thing what's your deal what's your deal and I was like I manage Mumford and Sons funny enough you know I liked your joke I thought that was quite funny and he's like yeah glad to hear it man and walked off <laughs> <laughs> but anyway he does his his sort of format for his interviews with everyone from like Barack Obama to when he was president to uh, you know whoever Daryl Hannah is like um, to really like dig deep into their family history and where they come from and who their parents were and all of that stuff. Well, I'm a bit embarrassed not to have heard of him. Oh, that's, no, not at all. Yeah, I think it's, it's good. It's really good stuff. I do listen to a lot of podcasts because I, um, I've got a, an indoor, well, I've got a, a bike that has got a, goes on one of those stands with a flywheel and you put your back wheel on it oh yeah and then connect to basically a game on the computer called Zwift right and um, usually several times a week I will spend an hour at the other end of my study or office just pedalling 
and listening to podcasts. It is quite nice. You can't get run over. What do you love? What's your top recommendation? I, I, I wouldn't really recommend it unless you really like Arsenal, but the, the one that I listen to most <laughs> is the is Arsecast and Arsecast Extra. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. My dad has a season ticket. Does he? He does. But uh, just one, which I always thought was pretty hilarious. It's like when you put yourself down on the list 14 years ago, it was for one ticket. I mean, so now he goes to every game on his own. So he lives here too? Yeah. They live in Canterbury. Well, that was nice. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was